This is Polly, and I am now going to give you some dates for Chicago Dialogue Therapy Training. It's training for therapists who want to learn the dialogue therapy method, which is the method that incorporates real dialogue plus a number of other features of evaluation and communication. It's for anyone interested in learning couples therapy and especially interested in learning dialogue therapy. Uh, and the first training in Chicago is November 7th through 10th, 2019. The second training is January 30th through February 2nd, 2020, April 2nd through the 5th, 2020, and May 14th through the 17th, 2020. These are all extended weekends, and together these trainings result in about 85 hours of continuing education credit for mental health professionals. You can check on my website to see where the training will take place in Chicago. If you live close to Chicago or you want to make the commute, it's going to be actually a really lively training. And we've taken some time to set it up. And I know there are a lot of people interested in the Chicago area. But I would encourage anybody who's close by and interested in completing the training, getting certified in dialogue therapy, to check the website about the training in Chicago. Welcome to Enemies from War to Wisdom. Why do we need enemies? From intimate relationships to politics, tribalism, and community, we cannot seem to stop dehumanizing each other. Chronic conflicts in our families, societies, and nations seem inevitable. In this podcast, we analyze human hostilities from the most mundane to the most sophisticated. We apply psychology, psychoanalysis, art, spirituality, and relational theory in conversations about belonging and othering. Each program reaches for a fresh wisdom that shows us how to step back from creating enemies in our lives. I'm your host, Jill Abelock, a book artist, end-of-life doula and spiritual caregiver, and mindfulness meditation teacher. I'm here with my co-host, Polly Young Eisendrath, who is a psychologist, Jungian analyst, author, and speaker. We approach our ideas, each from our own worlds, but always from the spirit and teachings of Buddhism, of which we are lifelong practitioners. You've heard the saying, no good deed goes unpunished, and you know there is a wisdom in it. But what is that wisdom? In today's podcast, we are going to talk about a human condition that occurs in families and with friends. There is an unequal need or dependency between supposed equals. For example, a grown-up child who needs to live with parents. And the dependent party becomes very resentful and ungrateful. The providing party is hurt and angry at the lack of recognition of generosity. This is a classic human setup in which the emotion of envy plays a big role. The dependent person feels and believes that the providing person has so much more and could give so much more, and so seems to be stingy or ungenerous. Think about the traditional patriarchal marriage in which the woman is financially and perhaps emotionally dependent on her husband. No matter how generous he might be, she feels cheated 
of her freedom to make decisions about having and spending money, and she feels angry that she is dependent on him. In this episode, we will talk about the natural limits of human gratitude and how we can better cope with those limits if we face them squarely. Hi, Jill. Hi, Polly. <laughs> it's great to have you here as my co-host on the podcast. And this is your very first podcast. Uh, I hope you like it so far. <laughs> I do. Thank you very much. And I think I think it's a really important topic, and I think it's a conversation that really needs to happen. Oh, I do too. And it's very confusing for people. But before we get into the conversation, let's, let's talk about Eleanor, Eleanor Johnson, who was my co-host for all of the first podcasts. Eleanor has moved back to New York City. She's moved off the mountain here in Vermont. And so she's no longer available to co-host the podcast, but she's also very much a fan and she's very happy that you're taking over. And so I just wanted to thank Eleanor for all the great work that she did and for the times that uh, she and I were laughing together and talking about the subjects of human hostility. And now you and I will be doing that. Yes, so, yeah. and she did a wonderful job, and I feel like I have pretty big shoes to fill, but I'm really excited to be here and doing this with you. Well, I'm so happy you are. We've been such long friends and such good friends, and both of us actually following the Dharmic path or the path of the Buddhist teachings, and also developing in our own lives in terms of serving families and couples and working with the issues that surround especially the fears and anxieties of family life. And that's what we're going to talk about, especially today, although this issue of hostile dependency goes outside of the family. Family, but I think often it's where people notice it the most, you know. And so what you see and what's so confusing is that one individual, and let's just say, let's talk about the the parents or the parent, might be a single parent, who have adult children living at home or maybe an adult child living at home. And so the parent has the experience that she's being very generous she's providing this place to live, maybe, maybe she's providing both room and board, and that she's also given up some sort of freedom of her own to have this adult child live with her. And yet what she finds is almost a distinct sort of lack of gratitude. Like instead of the person, the child Again, adult child here. I don't mean young child. I mean a person who's, let's say, 20 and over. And instead of that person expressing gratitude, like, thanks so much for taking me on here. I realize, you know, you expected me to be out on my own by now. Instead, that individual often complains, seems bitter and resentful, and at times might be especially mean-spirited or critical of the parent, and especially about not having more resources provided. You know, it's like if the parent is providing for room and board, perhaps the child is saying, well, can't you also lend me the car? Like, you know, what's with that? You have two cars. Why can't you lend me one of those? So this, this atmosphere of seeming to be, you know, generous, open-handed, open-hearted towards someone. And then that creates a kind of punishment back, you know, a kind of 
let's say, slapping you down almost, uh, that comes back to you. I think that's very, very confusing. Do you, do you think that it might be displaced resentment or disappointment in self for the adult child? Because they probably expected that they would be off on their own and able to take care of themselves and have had to subvert their autonomy and accept the kindness or generosity of their parent, but what it says to them about themselves is actually a negative message. Well, I think that can play a role. But even if you think about it that way, that's still pretty self-centered. It's like the 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 child is then all focused on what this means for me mm-hmm. and not at all focused on what's the other person doing for me. And so I think it plays a role. And yet I think in many situations outside of the family and also among friends, you'll see the same kind of thing happening without that, let's say, humiliation piece. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. kind of humiliating for the child to not succeed. And so that can uh, trigger a rage response, like I'm enraged that I'm still here, Mm -hmm. you know, still doing this. But you can get the same kind of thing in a business setting or among friends where you go out of your way to accommodate somebody else's needs Mm -hmm. or you go out of your way to sort of do an extra favor, give something to the other person. And then the person is not actually grateful, but seems sort of spiteful and hateful, as Randy Newman once said. He said, they're not grateful, they're spiteful and hateful. And uh, I think that, that, again, I think is really connected to this root of envy, which I, I want to talk about envy mm-hmm. as one of these primary emotions. It's actually a secondary emotion, but one of these primary motivators yeah. for this issue of the of biting the hand that feeds you, you know, that... Well, when somebody is feeding you, it's, there's, there's an obvious inequality in the relationship. And so the illusion that we all have grown up with, the, the sort of polite fiction of our society that's actually not so polite, Mm -hmm. even though I, that's how I originally heard it referenced, that we are all equals is every time somebody does something for you and you feel beholden to them for having done it, um, it's a pointer that actually we're not equal. Right. And that issue of equality is, of course, a principle and an ideal. It doesn't really exist anywhere. Although, I mean, you could say that the birds actually have various kinds of fairness design built into them because, you know, many, many bird species have this business of counting. They'll count the grapes or they'll count the seeds. And if one bird has more than another, even a third bird might try to equal it out. But there is definitely the sense of some sort of fairness, equal or whatever that's connected to numbers, even with birds. And certainly you get that in the higher apes and you get it in various other animals. So that sort of principle of fairness, you might say, seems in some odd way to be built into nature. Maybe it's a survival thing. 
who knows, but it goes a lot farther with humans. The thing that is really remarkable, though, from a psychoanalytic point of view, is that Melanie Klein, the psychoanalyst that wrote a, an essay called Envy and Gratitude, um, she discovered in her analyses of very young children this tremendous rage that the infant feels in relation to what she called the good breast. In other words, some kind of source. So the infant comes across this this mother's breast and the infant is very, very hungry. And the breast actually seems to have all of the milk. And so the infant attacks the breast, not with the sort of just the desire to get the milk out, but also the hostility that something else has all the goodies that the infant is without the goodies and there's something there that has all the goodies. And so let me just bite down on that and, you know, hurt it because it's got so much. And so Melanie Klein found that even at a very young age, children would become enraged that the resources were not inside of them. And so they could become enraged that there is something out there that won't give them everything. Like they would like to have all of that, but they can't have all of that. And so they'll attack that. And so she has lots of, lots of incredibly graphic images about bloodied breasts and so on. These are fantasies. These are mm-hmm. fantasies that adults and babies have about attacking something that has all the goodies. So in a fundamental way, we human beings seem to not be able to fully appreciate the boundless goodness of something else. I mean, there because is, we fear lack. Well, because we feel a lack, then, yeah, or or maybe we have a lack, you know. So, you know, the the sort of ordinary way of seeing this in grown-up life, and I pointed this out in an earlier podcast when we were talking about these self-conscious emotions, which come into play when you're about eighteen months old, and they include, you know, envy and jealousy and shame and guilt. Uh, and pride and self-pity, those emotions motivate us to compare ourselves to others. And they even motivate us to compare ourselves to some extent to what we call the world. And so some psychoanalysts have written about the envy of beauty, that, that humans actually sometimes can't tolerate the beauty of something else. And so they attack it because they don't own it. They don't have it. And so, you know, the research that I was, I was mentioning is research that's been done many times in different frameworks, but especially in social psychology about how living next to, if you live in a neighborhood where the homes are all pretty much at the same economic level, you actually are happier than if you live in a neighborhood where you're right up against much bigger, nicer homes. Like for your entire life, it affects you. Mm -hmm. It's a longitudinally fact that if you walk around with a lot of envy of other people's stuff, it actually can undermine your health. And so, yeah, and so like living, I mean, but who knew that, you know, if you live in a neighborhood where the great houses are down the street, that could affect your health. So it's just that, again, unconsciously, without knowing this, we can feel tremendous difficulty because somebody else seems to have more stuff than we have, because somebody else seems to have more beauty than we have, because somebody else seems to have, you know, in the case of the baby, like 
more resources than mm-hmm. we have. Mm-hmm. And it's not like in this situation that's hurting us. And in fact, it might be helping us, like the other people may be giving us something. They may be offering us possibilities, or they may be, like in the case of the infant, the mother's feeding the infant, the mother is actually sustaining the infant, but the infant is having this hatred towards that which sustains it. So what's underlying that hatred then? Is that feeling of lack? You know, honestly, I think it's probably, so all of the self-conscious emotions, again, they're not there at birth and none of the other animals have them to the degree that Homo sapiens have. Mm -hmm. Some animals have some of these emotions, but they don't develop theories about themselves in comparison to others. Mm -hmm. They don't develop various kinds of ideologies about hierarchy. They have hierarchy, Mm -hmm. but it's not like they have theory, like, you know, I don't get as much as you get. And so that means that I need to attack you. It's more like if you have more than I have, maybe I'll attack your stuff. But humans do this thing of comparing. Mm -hmm. And envy is actually the experience of hating someone because they have resources that you cannot have, Mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. That's why you hate them. Mm -hmm. Not because they've done something to you, not because there's some retribution. Whereas jealousy is the motivation to compete with someone to get what they have. Mm -hmm. So jealousy is the desire to possess what you see as the better resource and envy is the hatred of it and actually the desire to destroy it. Mm-hmm. It's, it goes beyond even just hating it. Mm-hmm. So again, biting the hand that feeds you, you destroy the hand. <laughs> you know, it's like you're biting down on that hand and it, it's not going to continue to feed you if you keep biting it. Mm-hmm. And yet there's a way, if your envy is not checked, if you don't know you have it, if you don't know what it is, there's a way that you feel really like this is fair. This is justified. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in the case of the parent. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, my dad has two cars. One of them just sits in the garage. Why can't he give me that car? Mm-hmm. You know, and there's no recognition then that that the dad is already supporting them, that the dad is already feeding them and mm-hmm. so on. It's like, yeah, he's got more than I have. Mm-hmm. Why can't he give it to me? Mm-hmm. And it, and that motivation, I think, again, is confusing because, and Melanie Klein points this out in her essay on envy and gratitude, it's the blocking of the gratitude that often really upsets the other person. And, you know, now here I'm not talking about a mother and a baby, right. but adults who right. are supposedly right. equals, yeah. So is there a path from envy to gratitude? What needs to shift or change in order for someone to move from a state of envy to gratitude? Well, you know, as many times I said on the podcast, the very, very first thing is you have to wake up. You know, before you can do anything about anything that you're doing, you have to know you're doing it. And so a lot of people do not recognize that when they feel somebody else has a lot of privilege, that there's a lot of privilege out there, 
that they may then be feeling envy and that envy may be motivating them to not express any gratitude, to not see what actually is being given to them, to not appreciate what is good in their situation. And so waking up to this idea that if you believe that somebody else has got a whole bag of goodies and you have only three quarters of a bag, that's going to be a problem for you. And that problem is not going to be just to get the bag full, but the problem is going to be that you want to hurt, harm, attack, hate, destroy the other person's bag of goodies. And that person is not going to like that. And if that person is the person who's also supporting you, you are going to undermine the support. And I, again, going to the patriarchal marriage, you know, I don't see many patriarchal couples anymore in therapy. But back when I did, the interesting thing would be that whoever was the breadwinner, the other person often didn't know how much money that person made. Mm -hmm. And the other person didn't know how much work it took to make that money or what was involved with, let's say, managing, mm -hmm. administering that money. In other words, it was as though the person who was actually benefiting from the other person's generosity was erasing mm -hmm. the whole thing, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of erasing the resources. I don't think it matters who the breadwinner is, if one person is dependent on another person for that breadwinning, it takes effort to pay attention to mm -hmm. it, to say, oh my gosh, that was really work that you were doing. Because the tendency to say is something like, well, how come I can't do this or that? Why can't we take a vacation in the Bahamas? You know, I don't get it. You, you know, I don't see why we're not, we don't have more money than we have. In other words, it's the tendency is to actually feel like I should have more. So right, to focus on the lack, to focus on the lack, and then maybe even the resentment or the attack, like, you, you know, you could do so much more for me, mm -hmm. you just don't do it. So it sounds like that's ingrained, right? That's a, that's oh, something, it's a natural, it's a tendency. natural thing. I mean, if it's happening with babies at the breast who are not even self-conscious yet, right, right, then it's, 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 part of our coding. It's part know. of our design. Yes. It's part of the design of the Homo sapien. And so we've got a lot of design that is motivating us towards destructiveness. Mm -hmm. And we've been talking a lot about that um, in podcasts generally. So we overall, Homo sapiens, human beings, we're very negatively motivated. Mm -hmm. And we also remember what's missing and what's wrong and so on much more than remembering what was done well and what we liked and all that. And, and that so, does come from survival, right? I mean, that comes from noticing, noticing, we notice change, we notice, and particularly we notice when something's missing or because that's part of what we needed to do in order to survive. That's less true now, obviously, but as part of the evolution of our species. Well, let's say that's the theory. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, my, my theory is a little different and maybe a little more like Harari's in Sapiens, which is that I, I think that 
uh, we're a, we human beings are a little overloaded for what I would call competence mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that we, if you see that our eyes are right behind the prefrontal cortex, so there, it's kind of like the limbic system is looking out through something that is kind of motivating it to imagine a future and to want to dominate in that future, not just the present moment, mm -hmm. but, oh, we're going to accumulate some wealth. We're going to accumulate some grains for the future, which doesn't exist right, right now. And then we get very involved with that. Mm -hmm. And so we then have this kind of mastery of something that isn't really happening in the present, mm -hmm. And consequently, and I, you know, I, I see how human beings will move towards some vision that they believe is going to work and engage themselves with it. And then it's not working very well, but they can't change it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my feeling is that a lot of the self-conscious emotions, what they're motivating us towards is this process that Piaget calls decentering, that we take ourselves out of our immediate experience mm -hmm. and we forecast or we abstract mm -hmm. or we imagine mm -hmm. uh, something that's not happening right now mm -hmm. and we throw ourselves into it. Mm -hmm. And then it may not go well. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, Harari mentions that actually agricultural societies went so much more poorly than hunter-gatherer societies. But once human beings got into them, even though they must have noticed that things weren't going as well, they couldn't stop. Mm -hmm. So it's questionable whether that's really survival mm -hmm. because it we take ourselves into, even right now, I would say, we have dominated the natural resources of the earth way too quickly. We all know that puts us at risk, but we can't seem to stop doing mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. So it's really questionable to me whether that Darwinian notion of survival applies really well to the competitive striving of human beings, because I think we get involved in these fictions about the future, mm -hmm. and we're storing up and we're, and we're aggravated by stuff which is not, not really relevant. You know? Or even happening. Or even happening. Right. I mean, I, I, I will often say to people who are caught in anxiety about situations that are not happening, which is a lot of what anxiety is, you know, we, we tend to build the worst case scenario and we do that as part of preparation for it. Okay. So I am anticipating in this particular situation that there is going to be a potential negative outcome. My brain works through all of the possibilities of that negative outcome to try and develop strategies. However, emotionally, what tends to happen is I've built that worst case scenario and moved in. Yes, of course. And, and so then, then I'm living in the present in some fictional future worst case scenario. And that's motivating my present behavior, which has nothing to do with this fictional situation. And that's what you're experiencing and feeling most exactly. of the time. So going back to envy, then let's think about you, let's just say you and your sister, you and your brother, thinking about your inheritance in the future, you know, and whether one sibling is in there closer to the parent. Oh, I mean, I've heard people in therapy say things like, 
Yeah, I'm sure my sister is going to get that cabinet. She's got her eye on it, you know. And so there's there's already an attacking of the sibling based on imagined future envy when the sibling is going to have goodies from the parent's legacy that you don't have. Right. And so all of that is like you're already hating that situation when it's not happening. Yep. And so again, it I question whether that's really survival. Mm -hmm. If it is, it's a real design flaw. Mm -hmm. I mean, so the design flaw for humans, in my view, is this overinvestment in what we call the self, which can include our families, what we had, you know, we identify our families with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's it's an overinvestment that's based on comparison to others, so-called others. And that includes all of those social emotions, self-conscious emotions, you know, um, envy, jealousy, guilt, shame, pride, self-pity, those emotions, when you engage them, especially unconsciously, they not only express something, but they're going to evoke from others mm -hmm. some kind of response. And so the envy expression is essentially either putting somebody else down for what they have, attacking somebody for what they have or destroying what somebody else has because you don't feel you can possess it yourself. Right. And in all three cases, it's it's a provocation. It's a provocation because the other person isn't going to just respond with, oh, sure, come on in and take my goodies. They're going to respond to that with some sort of retaliation. And then that retaliation often will provoke back again and of course, the the big conflict that people get into is the rage and humiliation cycle where one person is exposing the weaknesses of the other, mm -hmm. supposedly to try to improve things, but that enrages the other person who then exposes the weakness of the first person. And again, that enrages that person. And so that rage humiliation cycle can truly get going with hostile dependency. Mm -hmm. And then you've got people who feel so bitter. I mean, that whole sense that you have, you know, and I know one can have it with one's friends, with one's children, with one's siblings, um, partners, uh, workmates, where you feel like you've given and given. Mm -hmm. You know, you've, you've provided, you've accommodated, you know, you mm -hmm. have, mm -hmm. and the other person has just wanted more, been bitter about it, not expressed gratitude, has in fact, maybe even attacked you mm -hmm. that, you know, for what you have given, like you didn't give it in the right way or with mm -hmm. the right tone of voice or whatever. And that gets into then your feeling that this person doesn't appreciate me I, I cannot trust the person. I can't be friends with this person because they don't appreciate me. And then there's a negativity that comes from that. And usually it's an attack back on the person who's expressed the envy and the hostile dependency. Mm -hmm. So again, what's, what's the, the path out of it? Right. The, very first, the very first step is to recognize what envy is, mm -hmm. and to understand that hostile dependency is a big feature of human life. It's not a small feature. Mm -hmm. And it can happen 
quickly in a situation where somebody, say a member of your family gets ill mm-hmm. and they, they need help. Maybe they're older. Mm-hmm. They need help. They feel uh, vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And so you begin, you oh, well, you maybe move them into your house mm-hmm. or you build some dwelling for them or you give them money to get something to improve their situation. Or you move in and start taking care of you them. You take care of them. Yeah. And I would say nine times out of ten, they are going to bite you. Mm-hmm. They are not going to thank you. Mm-hmm. But if you know that that's the case, as the recipient, you may take that not so personally. Right. That this is that this person is vulnerable, maybe near you know in the later part of life, maybe unconscious mm-hmm. of the hostility. Mm-hmm. So maybe not take it so personally. If you yourself, like if you are receiving in a vulnerable state, you know, like last year I had a major surgery. And for a while, I wasn't functioning, and I had to receive. And sometimes, it's true, I would feel like, why can't she bring the soup up here earlier? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I was hungry, and the soup wasn't there. Mm-hmm. But I knew enough to know that I was feeling the hostility, at least partly out of my vulnerability and mm-hmm. dependency, mm-hmm. so that then I consciously would say thank you so much mm-hmm. and praise the soup, even though internally there was a little voice saying, man, that soup was late getting up here. Right. You know, so it's like opposing the natural hostility that you feel when you're vulnerable and right. dependent and other people around you are well and functioning and so on. So I think on and, and, that and side... And there's also it. some envy. There's not only the humiliation of being the vulnerable one, but there's also envy of their healthful state and their yes. capabilities at the time. And so it sounds like on both sides, um, awareness is a pretty good first step toward out of envy and hostility and toward gratitude. Right. And the what the thing you have to do is the 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 thing that homo sapiens can do again given that we have this overload of these self-conscious emotions this decentering that we do when we step outside of we can do that in a way that actually is beneficial and that's where mindfulness comes in. Mm-hmm. You know, we can take a step back from our immediate reactivity and check What's going on? Mm-hmm. What's going on within me, mm-hmm. in my experience right now? How am I talking to myself? Mm-hmm. You know, what am I actually listening to mm-hmm. in my own mind? What's the narrative? What's the narrative? And then also, what's going on in my feelings? Mm-hmm. And if I feel that really churned up kind of envy feeling where I feel simply like, what often the experience is like, I'm going to put it into words like, this is not fair. You know, I'm left out and I'm not getting what I need. It's not fair. If I'm having that kind of, it's a kind of solar plexus feeling for me. And then the the words, I then can say, ah, okay, I'm envying. Mm -hmm. I'm envying this person because the person's well right Mm -hmm. now. Or I'm envying this person because 
She went to the Bahamas in February and I didn't. But that doesn't harm me that she went to the Bahamas. Right. So I need to check that, take the step back and remind myself that this is just a reactivity. This is nothing really. This is not something that I want to express or that I want to dwell on mm-hmm. or that I want to hang on to. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just a passing moment of envy mm-hmm. and fine. Fine. And sometimes I can even also translate it into jealousy in myself and make a plan to go to the Bahamas then, Mm -hmm. or uh, also praise the other person to say, you know, that was lovely that Mm -hmm. you had that chance to go. I I think that probably takes um, more effort to Mm -hmm. do the praise because you have Mm -hmm. to overcome and you have to remember that the other person is actually a separate person from you and that, that their welfare and their uh, beauty and their goodness are not taking something from you. Right. And I I mean, I think, so I think there's two mistaken notions also at play. One of them is the illusion that things are supposed to be fair. Right. And the other one is that it's a zero-sum game. If you perceive that somebody is more beautiful than you, Mm -hmm. or um, you perceive that they have more than you, or I mean, if objectively, in fact, they do have more than you, that somehow that diminishes what mm-hmm. you have, that there mm-hmm. is this pie and, you know, your segment being smaller is is a problem because their segment's bigger and that um, they're, somehow they're having more takes away from what you have, even if you have enough. Right. And I, I think that on one hand, that's you can reason about that and you can see it's not rational, but then also to remember that you have this very fundamental capacity for envy, which is built into your system mm-hmm. and into your design. Mm-hmm. And it's not a rational response to the right. situation. It's a reactive, self-conscious response um, based on this natural competitiveness and self-protection that humans have. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if you know that that's the case, you'll recognize it when you feel it and you won't condemn it, you'll actually accept this is a human feeling. And this gets a little bit around to the Buddhist teaching about sympathetic joy, mm-hmm. you know, which I have I, always loved that teaching. I think it's called mudita, I think. I'm, I'm not totally sure the sympathetic joy is called that in Sanskrit, but I think it is. And so the teaching is that you can expand your own sense of joy by enjoying someone else's joy and by celebrating someone else's joy. Now, the Buddhists are not psychoanalysts Mm -hmm. because they did not realize, I've never heard any of them realize, that how quickly someone else's joy can activate envy. Mm -hmm. Now, they will speak to the issue of jealousy, Mm -hmm. but it always sounds like you could rule out the jealousy if you just had developed enough right gratitude gratitude practice as an antidote yes rather than rather than as an end result of awareness and practice that's right right or that that maybe i i feel like buddhism lacks a really clear understanding of the self-conscious emotions Mm -hmm. i mean it does grasp some of them like jealousy Mm -hmm. but i think it does make too little of the range of these comparative emotions that are built in to the organism Mm -hmm. and that we have to do something about. And, you know, if we identify more with a group sort of um, psychology like 
many Asian countries, people don't identify so much as individuals, but mm-hmm. they identify with a group. They then use those emotions towards the whole group. Mm-hmm. But in the West, we identify as individuals, and so we use the self-conscious emotions more towards ourselves as right. individuals. Right. But because I think the thing about sympathetic joy is that when you see someone else's joy, honestly, I believe there is nothing wrong with having a moment of envy. Mm-hmm. And as long as you simply know what it is, Mm -hmm. you know, that you're having this kind of moment like, oh, I didn't get one of those or I didn't have that. Um, And you can say, oh, okay, you're having some envy Mm -hmm. and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And, but probably not express it, probably not put down what that person has saying something like, well, I didn't need a Porsche, you know, or (laughs) something like that, you know? And so the ideal of sympathetic joy, you can practice it Mm -hmm. if envy doesn't intrude. And many times I'm very aware when I go out with my dog that a lot of what people enjoy about having a dog is sympathetic joy. Mm -hmm. You see your dog running, you see your dog fetching and swimming and your dog's expressing so much joy and you're like, oh, that's so great, I could feel the dog's joy. Mm -hmm. But then when you have your friend out there running and swimming and all, you're going like, ah, (laughs) you don't feel the sympathetic joy. The dog does not actually function as something that you compare yourself. Right, it doesn't invoke envy. It doesn't invoke the envy. So it's an easy sympathetic joy. And you can do that with babies and dogs and things but often not with your friends mm-hmm. so easily, mm-hmm. not with your partner so easily, mm-hmm. not with your parents so easily, mm-hmm. you know. And so again, recognizing there's this other thing, but it doesn't have to lead to the actual hostility. Right. You can recognize it. You can not take it so personally. Like, okay, that's just that. And you can transform it being a human being instead mm-hmm. of a dog or instead of a, an elephant. And the person who's on the receiving end of getting their hand bitten in some situations, as for example, working with a family member or someone who is ill or very old, you can recognize that it's it's a natural reaction. It's not personal to mm-hmm. you, the that sort of hostility uh, rather than gratitude. Right. And I'm for me, as an end-of-life caregiver... Um, I had to learn actually to monitor my own responses in situations. And for as much as on an intellectual level, I would say I'm not doing this for gratitude. (laughs) There is, there is still a piece of, if not gratitude, recognition. Mm -hmm. And when neither gratitude nor recognition are forthcoming to me, if, if I'm stuck in wanting that, mm-hmm. then that's the path to burnout. And yeah. so yeah. simply using practice, particularly Buddhist practice and mindfulness practices, to be aware of my own need for and desire for recognition and gratitude. And then to some extent, taking on the responsibility of providing that to myself rather yes. than expecting yes. the other person to give it to me. I appreciate myself for what I'm offering to this person. Mm -hmm. I appreciate and recognize what I'm doing on behalf of this other person. That releases the other person from the burden of providing that back to me. And I think it's not just in end-of-life care. Obviously, it's at anyone as a caregiver. I think if you can be 
the source of your own gratitude and recognition. You're actually releasing the person you're caring for from that burden. And whether or not that, that, that reduces their, their hostility or their envy, it at least makes it more bearable. What makes it more bearable? And that's the thing is to, is to be able to bear a situation where you're being treated unfairly. Mm-hmm. And I think it also helps to have this modicum of psychoanalytic knowledge that hostile dependency is a natural state. Mm-hmm. And it starts with infancy. Mm-hmm. And then people may be able to overcome it during times when they're conscious or if they become conscious of it. But then when they're ill and old or when they're in a vulnerable state, sometimes they maybe won't overcome the hostility that they feel simply in their dependency. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't take it personally, if you realize that's part of the state that we feel, when we feel as though all of the resources are out there. We, we don't have the resources, you know, mm-hmm. and so we hate the resources rather than appreciate them. Right. Then you also can say, this is a natural response. Um, but then the other, other hand of it is that if it's, if it's a situation where you do have a dependency of a friend or an adult child or in a work situation, where that dependency has become hostile, you may have to stop the dependency mm-hmm. because it's not going to go down a good road. If if it's really become bitter and the person who is in the role of the, the dependent one, if they've become very bitter, it's unlikely they're going to turn and appreciate mm-hmm. what you've been doing. And consequently, it's often better to draw a boundary there right. and say, you know, this this isn't working any longer. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. And so that that hostile dependency is just stopping. Mm-hmm. But, you know, from again, from the psychoanalytic perspective, this is natural to feel hostile dependence. Mm-hmm. And we often don't know that. Mm -hmm. Because it seems like it's completely wrong if someone's giving you something that you should actually feel gratitude Mm -hmm. rather than hostility. So I think the two together, one, to work with yourself when you're working with, you know, when you're giving something in an extended way and appreciate yourself and also don't exhaust yourself giving to others, that is never working. Mm -hmm. Um, But then on the other hand, if you do get the hostility back, recognizing it's natural. Mm -hmm. And if you feel it yourself, recognizing it's natural. Right. As you did when you were incapacitated Mm -hmm. and being cared for by friends and others. Right. And wanting the soup to get up there faster. Right. You know, it's like, I know that soup could get up here faster. And and just recognizing that 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 was just me feeling really envious of all their health. Right. And I was confined to a bed. Right. Yeah. Right. So this has been really good talking about this. Yes. Thank (laughs) you so much. And um, thanks. Yeah, thank you. And welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be joining you. So soon I will be teaching at the Rowe Conference Center. It's in Rowe, Massachusetts. And I will be offering two different programs. One is a couples retreat program, which is on the weekend of October 4th and 5th, 2019. And that's for anybody who wants to participate. You can check on the ROWE website, R-O-W-E. 
And then I will be presenting as well a foundational training in dialogue therapy that begins on Monday, October 6th and goes to October 11th. That first segment is a five-day program. It's part one of a two-part certificate training in dialogue therapy. And this training program is for any therapist who wants to enhance skills for couples therapy or wants to learn to do dialogue therapy or for non-therapists who want to learn this training in order to become a real dialogue specialist. And we talked about real dialogue on several of the podcasts. The first week of the training is October 6th through 11th, 2019. And then the second week is March 6th through 11, 2020. March 6th through 11, 2020. And so this model of therapy based on real dialogue, and it's a structured, time-limited form of couples therapy that draws on psychoanalysis, mindfulness, and psychodrama. It can be applied to couples in conflict and couples who are having especially difficulties with their intimacy, as well as to other dyadic relationships where there's difficulties with repetitive conflicts. Uh, In the training, you'll be learning in lots of different ways through mindfulness practices, dyadic exercises, videos, lecture, intensive sessions, and you will learn about lots of different things, including the nature of personal love, challenges of equality, reciprocity, and mutuality, and the enemy factors in personal love. So there's lots more to the training, but if again, if you check on my website, www.youngeisendrath.com, or if you check on the Row website, you will get the details for the training program October 6th through 11th, 2019, and then March 6th through 11th, 2020 for the full certification. And the uh, couples retreat precedes the weekend before that October 6th date. So I hope to see you there. I always look forward to the training. We learn a lot together, and it's also a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening. To continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our Patreon page supports Real Dialogue for Opposing Sides live events. Please visit it at www.patreon.com forward slash Real Dialogue, all one word. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.